Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3. We have been over the last three weeks considering this text in the context of our church, considering two men that Pastor Freddie has nominated for the office of becoming elders or pastors in our church, Dairon and Mario. And in light of that, which voting will be next week, we have been studying 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Let us read the Word of God together once again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And that is a reading of God's word. Let us pray once again. Our Father, as we come before you, we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is done in heaven. We pray for your will in our congregation. We pray for the mind of the Spirit as we consider these two men to be added to the body of elders in our church. We pray for them. We pray for their families. We pray for Cornerstone that you help us to be faithful, to be found faithful doing the work you have commissioned to us. And as we give ourselves to the exposition of your word, bless it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today's sermon will be more of a lecture than a sermon. And it is intentional. We will have a lot of reading. And hopefully the screen will work and you will be able to follow the reading in the screen. It's kind of so lengthy, the reading, that I even made a Spanish version of the notes so that the translator at least may have something to lock into ahead of time because, believe it or not, when we are translating, quotes are very difficult to translate for some reason. But anyways, uh, we are engaged, and this is the final section of this studying of the qualifications for ministry, and we are considering the character of those who are called to the ministry. There is a quote that I have, the first one, by Jeremy Ryan, which says, Jesus is the chief shepherd, and elders are merely his temporary helpers. That's a great line. Pastors, bishops, elders are just helpers in the church. Nothing more, nothing less. At their best, elders model Jesus' character, teach Jesus' word, and lead the church by pointing it toward Jesus. Good elders never lose that awareness that they themselves are still sheep, utterly dependent on the grace of the good shepherd. 
Somebody asked a question and Mario, one of the men nominated for ministry, he said that. Well, how, how is the authority of the elders? First things that came out of his mouth, if I remember correctly, is, well, el- elders are sheep. <laughs> what authority? The authority of Scripture. That's, there's no authority other or greater than that. Remember, John MacArthur was once asked in a Q&A session, uh, Dr. MacArthur, uh, can you please tell me what is the authority of the elders? And his answer was none. I loved it. None other than Scripture. He qualified it. Yes, if you're talking from Scripture, if you're explaining, quoting, explaining what God has said in His Word, yes, you have every authority according to the Scriptures. But other than that, none. We are servants of one another, whether we are elders or not. We have been considering the calling, the character, the confirmation, the commissioning, and the church response to the elders, and I hope that I can finish that today. So let us move on to where we stopped last time on the character of the elders. We consider they have to be above reproach, they have to have sexual purity, they have to have an ordered home life, and they have to have private piety. Next, I'm shuffling the the characteristics, not following the text, just to have some kind of order as we go through them. Besides their private piety, they have to have public piety. And what do I mean by that? Well, Paul finishes the the paragraph saying that the pastor, the elder, must have a good testimony with those outsiders. And outsiders in the New Testament are those who are not in the church, those who are not Christians, those who do not belong to the community to the people of God, to the Israel of God. Outsiders, those who are not part of who we are, but elders, pastors like all of us, have a life outside of these walls, right? Actually, most of our lives takes place outside of the congregation, outside of meeting together. Well, pastors must have a good reputation with those who are outsiders. And this is the bottom bracket, if you remember that, of what we said about being blameless. Being blameless is not being impeccable. It's not being spotless. Only Jesus was that way. But Paul brackets the qualifications. He puts two parentheses. Above reproach. Blameless with outsiders. It's the same. In these things that he's been describing, elders, pastors, ought to be examples of what a Christian is. So this is not an acceptance or popularity with the world. Jesus, in fact, says, Woe is thee when people speak well of you. If your goal in life is to be, is to be well spoken of, if your ministry, your, everything you do, your goal is not to finish your task, is not to be found faithful in what you do, is not to accomplish the goal or the target you have, but your main goal, I need to make sure that people like me. If that's your main goal, Jesus says, Woe is thee when men speak well of you. That means you're willing to compromise. You're willing to twist the truth. You're willing to bend the truth just because you want the glory of men. And you cannot have the glory of men and the glory of God at the same time. It's either one or the other. So it's not a call for them to be popular, but it is a call for them not to be a scandal of the gospel. John Owen, if I'm quoting him correctly... I believe it's the one who wrote, yes, unbelievers may despise Christians and reject them, but in their heart of hearts, they admire them. True. 
I may not like your Christianity, I may not like what you stand for, I may not like what you preach to me, but in their heart of hearts, I wish I were like you. I wish I had what you have. I, I wish my life were like yours, my family were like yours, and that's the whole point. And let me make a note, because I didn't make it last week, regarding they have to be individuals known for not being lovers of money. That's one of the marks that a pastor must have. His life must reflect that he is not interested in money. That doesn't mean that he cannot have money. If you work hard, especially in this country, if you work hard and you're responsible, having money is inevitable. Honestly, if you work hard and are diligent at what you do, Proverbs says, you will not be before obscure men. If you're diligent at what you do, diligent hands make rich. It's impossible not to enjoy the fruit of your labors if you do it responsibly. That's not the point. The point is you have to be known by be, for being a person whose goal is not to have money. Money is a tool that you use and it's just a loan. You have to give an account to God of how much you were given to distribute and to use for His glory. Elders have to be known by that. For, unfortunately, in our generation, <laughs> that's not common. Pastors are equated with being greedy for money and just making money out of piety, but that's another story. This is not, by the way, that the elders have to be according to my standards. Oh, elders to be true elders have to preach with jacket and tie. We went over that last week. No, that's, that has nothing to do with that. Elders to be good elders cannot come in tennis shoes to church or wear a ponytail. I'm being direct with Freddie, right? That's not the point either. <laughs> the text is not describing preference, likes, or dislikes. The text is describing this. Paul wrote to Timothy in this very same letter, in the same context. Do not let anyone despise your youth. At that point, Timothy was probably a man in his late 30s, for the Greeks, adult age started at 40. Don't let anyone look down on your youth. But be an example to the church in what? In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I guess it speaks for itself. Right? No, no, no need to go to the Greek of what that means. It, it means that we... <laughs> internally, somehow, someway, have to say, I, I wish my house were like Pastor Freddy's. I wish my life were like Pastor Freddy's. If I had children with me, I wish my children were like Pastor Freddy's. And if I'm evaluating Mario and Darren, yes, I wish, I wish I were like them. Why? Because they're examples of what a Christian is. That's the point. Is that perfection? No, it's not. You're not perfect either, nor am I, but that's the whole point. The whole point is they have to have a good testimony with those outsiders. Their piety is public. And then I come to <laughs> apt to teach. And this is one that, believe it or not, is, is controversial. What does apt to teach mean? And this is where we have a lot of quotes, and I'm doing it with one purpose. I have been told, I don't know if it's as a compliment or as something negative, I've been told that I'm a salesman. <laughs> and I've been told, even by people at work, you would make a good politician. You know how to argue. Well, just in case, because I'm not interested in selling anything but explaining a text, 
I want to anchor myself in others' opinions. So at the end of the day, we can leave saying, this is not Edwin's invention. Other individuals believe that. That's what the text says. What does apt to teach mean? First of all, what does the text does not say? Suhel Michelin taught us many, many years ago, when you're teaching theology, make sure that you explain what you mean and explain what you do not mean. The text doesn't say in the original, able to preach. And Paul could have used that word. It says didacticon. It doesn't say kerugmaticon. Kerugma or kerigma is the word used in Scripture, in the New Testament in particular, to describe the proclamation of the gospel. It is the word used to describe the preached word. Paul is not saying able to preach. Paul is writing able to teach. If you don't believe me, there's controversy around this. I know a man, faithful man, today retired. If I mention his name, perhaps some of you would identify him. Faithful man, fruitful ministry. To me, a great teacher, a good preacher. 30 years ago, somebody brought the accusation that he was not able to teach. So serious the accusation that it brought division among the churches in the Dominican Republic. For 20 years, the churches, the Reformed Baptist churches, the Reformed Baptist movement was divided over this issue. Because somebody said, such and such does not preach like Suhel Michelin. Well, I have news for you. I, know, I don't know anybody who preaches like Suhel Michelin. So if that's the standard, there's a lot of people who are going to fall down and that's not, not going to measure it. Able to teach is not be a John MacArthur, is not be a whomever your favorite preacher is. Able to teach means, and I'll start with my first quote. It comes from David Mathis. Who is David Mathis? Executive Director for Desiring God and the pastor of City Church. Somebody who's the Executive Director of an organization led by John Piper, I guess that knows something about this, right? So this is not me. Able to teach. He says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. He's just quoting Titus 1.9. So that's what an elder is required to do. Teach in sound doctrine, refute those who are in error and who contradict the gospel. Then he adds a seminary degree doesn't necessarily make a man able to teach. It just makes him a seminary graduate. Each local church must determine for itself if he is able to teach this specific flock. And that's a good point. <laughs> I remember many years ago that some people innocently, and you could tell their level of maturity when they say those things. These are young converts, people who barely understand Scripture. And they would come to me and say, you should be speaking in conferences. And I would tell them, if you knew the people who speak in conferences, you realize why I'm a nobody and I can never speak in a conference. Able to teach doesn't mean you have to have this level 
of ability and giftedness and knowledge to be able to preach and teach everywhere. No, each church determines that. David Mathis continues saying, whether a man is skilled in teaching in a country church, in a country church plant, may be quite different than whether he is skilled in teaching in a long-established, bustling city church. What individual churches should look for in their elders is not even men who are skilled in teaching relative to the best preachers online, or even the church across town, but whether they are skilled in teaching relative to this specific congregation, whether urban, rural, fledgling, or mature, long-established, or newly planted. Able to teach is able to teach here, in Cornerstone Bible Church, in the setting, context, multilingual or bilingual congregation we have in this area of town. Doesn't mean able to teach at the University of Miami School of Theology. Let's be clear there, right? Then he, Sam Imadi says, it's easy to assume able to teach must have something to do with preaching. If you want to be an elder, you have to be able to preach. But equating able to teach and with preaching is overreading of this qualification. Paul doesn't mention preaching in this passage. And neither he or any other New Testament writer assumes that preaching is the only context in which teaching occurs. Elsewhere in his writings, Paul clearly refers to teaching that outside, that teaching, that is, I'm sorry, outside the preaching ministry. And he quotes Romans 15, 14 and Titus 2, 3. Also, Paul recognizes that even though every elder should be able to teach, only certain elders will have any significant, consistent public teaching ministries. And he quotes this very letter, 1 Timothy 5.17, which says, To those elders who rule well, have them with double salary, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I know that commentators debate if especially means I'm talking about those. That's another debate. But the text says, to those who rule well, pay them double salary. Especially if besides ruling well, they preach and teach. That means something. Why? It means that not all elders preach and teach. Now, you may not believe me. I'll use examples of people that you may know that you may not know. Many, many years ago, when I visited the church at New Jersey, at Pastor Martin Church, the Reformed Baptist Church of Trinity Baptist Church in New Jersey, which was like the uh, St. Peter's Cathedral of the Reformed Baptist Movement, they had an elder who's already with the Lord, Marv Dixon. Never heard him preach. When, when I inquired... They said, he once taught a Sunday school, but he was an elder with A.N. Martin for decades, I believe 30 years or so. Never preached. But how do you know he was able to teach? <laughs> because he did a lot of counseling, 
and a lot of private exhortation and a lot of private instruction. Because able to teach doesn't mean able to preach. Now, if, well, but that's Ian Martin. Well, let's go to my patron saint, John MacArthur. Many years ago, he had an elder, a pastor, Daniel Lozano. Daniel Lozano is also with the Lord. Actually, with Daniel Lozano, he's where Brother Arturo came to the Lord with his preaching 40 years ago. To my knowledge, Daniel Lozano did not have enough English to, pre to preach at Grace Community Church. He was the pastor of the Spanish congregation at Grace Community Church. And he also was an elder. Why? Because he was apt to teach. In what context? In the context of the Spanish division of that large church. Back to my point, <laughs> able to teach is not exclusively public preaching. Paul taught privately and publicly according to the book of Acts. Some pastors rule well. They rule so well that Paul says they should be paid double salary. And others, besides ruling well, or apart from ruling well, they preach and teach. It's a matter of giftedness, circumstances, providence, calling, and a host of things. Elders must be able to teach. First Timothy 3.2, it's another quote. So that they can build up the church in sound doctrine and refute false teachers. Elder teaching can take lots of shapes. One-to-one -one instruction, small groups, classes, or preaching. An elder doesn't need a PhD in biblical studies, but he does need to be able to faithfully explain biblical truth. Again, that's quoting Jeremy Ryan. So, in this issue, that's what we evaluate. And if we cannot find out a person's ability because he doesn't have sermons online or because he has never preached to me, well, I can try to go indirectly and figure out if this person is able to withhold sound doctrine, if this person is able to retain the faithful word as it has been passed down to him, and if he is able to teach it unto edification and pass it on to others and refute gainsayers, whether he does it privately or in smaller groups. Because that's in the end what didacticon means. You hold fast to the truth received, you're able to pass it on. What does that mean? Well, the person has to be a normal human being with enough intellectual acumen, enough capability, enough providential favor to be able to do that. Spurgeon would use the expression of God didn't give wings to the Leviathan or to the elephant because God didn't mean elephants to fly. And some people may say, oh, but I want to preach. I want to be a pastor. But you may have a defect or an intellectual limitation or a providential limitation that hinders you from being that. Well, don't be. God doesn't want you there. Simple and plain. Don't fight with yourself. Fight it with God. Or rather, acknowledge God's providence who gives to each according to his own will. The man must understand scripture in its theological framework 
in context must be able to explain it and pass it on. Understanding scripture in its theological framework and context is not knowing a lot of Bible verses by memory. Some people have the ability to memorize scripture. In fact, I can quote a lot of scripture in Spanish, in a specific version of scripture. Why? Because for a long time I read that Bible version and I started reading it very young in my life. And things stuck. Now as I get older and we go from the Spanish version to the New King James and to the New American and now the ESV and the NIV. and Well, all I do when I quote scripture is basically translate my own Spanish version and try to get it into English. Right? It's not an issue of memorizing scripture. It's not an issue of reading a lot. It's an issue of do I understand scripture in its redemptive theological framework? And as that person is able to grasp it, can I pass it on to others? Privately, in small groups, in whatever context setting I am in. In fact, there are people who are great in the pulpit and a disaster in person. I tell my Teresa that I have friends that when I am really sad and despondent and faithless and depressed, I call them. And there are other friends that when I'm really stuck with some truth, I call them. And I don't mix them. Because if you call the emotional person who really is empathetic and can come to your aid when you need a good prayer or a good encouraging note, but if you call him for the theological question, he can really mess you up. And don't do the other one because the other one is as dry as they come. You may be crying and he's like, what, what, what are you crying? What's wrong with you? Oh, this happened to me. Big deal. You're going to heaven. Dude, say something better than that. Well, we have different gifts, abilities, and contexts. So, yeah, not everybody does everything right. He must be able to refute those who oppose. He must be a dog hound for heresy. I'll tell you something that very few here may know. Maybe the Roxlows, the Cocklers... Wade, you didn't know them because you came six months later than me. Who else? That's it. That's it. The guy who was here before Jeff Gwynn was a Sabellian. Sabellian? What is that? Unitarian. Unitarian, what is that? A person who did not believe in the Trinity. <laughs> and he was a pastor in this church. He did not understand God to be one God who exists in three distinct persons or consciousness, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. No, no, he saw that God was one, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were just historical manifestations. And that is called Sabellianism. That guy was a pastor here in Cornerstone. And before Jeff Gwynn, apparently there was no one who could catch on that until Jeff started to speak to him to find out who he was and what church was he coming into. A pastor must know when he hears a person talking, hey, something is weird here. Something's fishing. He has to be like those baseball batters that can tell the way the pitcher motions if this is coming with a curveball or a slider or some kind of changeup. That's the meaning of apt to teach. Of course, he must be disciplined to study the word. He must be diligent in his craft. Paul told Timothy in the same letter, until I come, 
Devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, and do not neglect the gift of God that is in you. And he said something that I, <laughs> I try to keep in mind. Practice these things. Let your progress be manifest to all. Tell your secret. Sometimes, sometimes, normally when I preach, I go to the door, and it's a reason to go to the door. We go to the door just to greet people, but sometimes you spot a person who may have a problem. You may detect an issue and try to engage that person. And sometimes, well, majority of the people goes by, who cares, one more. Some people say, thank you, thank you. And some say something which is very amusing to me, especially when they are really, they've been a long time in the church. You know, that, that sermon you preached, the best I've heard from you. And I say, okay, what is exactly what this person is trying to tell me? He's trying to tell me, you're a disaster, but today you hit it. <laughs> or whatever it is, I try to put the positive spin on it, but this is something that I always appreciate. If you think that I was a disaster, still am, but I'm getting better at it, I feel good. Because Paul tells Timothy, your progress has to be made evident and manifest to all. So when Karen is translating and she tells me, I cannot follow you, you're all over the place, you speak too fast, I make a point and try to speak slower. When somebody brings A, B, or C, I try to work on it, because progress has to be made manifest. And I'm not even a pastor. Well, pastors do have to work on their craft. Oh, well, I'm already a pastor. I don't need to worry about it anymore. No. That is part of being apt to teach. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best. Be diligent to present yourself approved. A skilled worker of God. One who has no need to be ashamed who traces, who cuts right the word of truth, orthotomeo, orthodontics. I wish my mom would have sent me to an orthodontics back in the day, but she didn't. But straight teeth, braces to make your teeth straight. Paul tells Timothy, make sure that when you preach, the teeth come out straight. You make a straight cut with the word of truth. You don't play with the text. You don't just go say whatever you want to say and let me just pack these verses around. Oh, God wants you to prosper and be happy and be yourself and express and develop the champion in you and hear all these passages that I'm going to use out of context. No. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is about the Savior. And whatever you're going to tell me, tell it to me in the context of God sent His Son to rescue sinners and sanctify them and bring them home with Him. Whatever you tell me in that setting, I'll take. But don't bring me your junk to tell me what I want to hear and feel good about it and pack the church and make more money for the church. That's not the point. Straight caught. Able to teach is not perfection. Therefore, big caveat, do not compare Dairon or Mario or Freddy to your favorite online preacher. Oh, but Freddie doesn't sound like Piper. No, probably only Piper sounds like Piper, as a matter of fact. 
don't compare them to your favorite celebrity. Because if, if any one of those who stand up to preach here were of that caliber, I have news for you. We were not here. We were celebrities too. But if we're not, it's because we have limitations in our gifts and in our abilities and where God wants us to be. Therefore, don't make those unfair comparisons. Apt to teach is what we have just gone and described. Now, my last long quote comes from Spurgeon, and I love it. Because I cannot go without mentioning this one. Spurgeon says in his lectures to his students, I sh and he's talking about this point, by the way, I should not complete this point if I did not add that mere ability to edify and aptness to teach is not enough. There must be other talents to complete the pastoral character. Sound judgment and solid experience must instruct you. Gentle manners and loving affections must sway you. Firmness and courage must be manifest. And tenderness and sympathy must not be lacking. Administrative gifts in ruling well must be or will be as much of a requisite as instructive gifts in teaching well. Seventh, he must not be a novice. Literally, a one who is recently planted. Neophytos. One who just came to the Lord or who has recently come to the Lord. What is the challenge of a recent convert to be brought into the ministry? Pastor Otto Sanchez calls it the young theologian syndrome. The young theologian syndrome is something that happened to most of us. It happened to me for sure when at 23 years old you are presented with Greek, Hebrew, systematic theology, and you're packed with all those things, and at 23 and a half, you already think that you know more than everybody else, that you're the new expert in the faith, that you're the next Puritan, and that you are the next super genius about Bible truth. And your head becomes super big to the point that you can barely cross through doors or just get down to deal with people. That happens when you're too young in the faith, pride overcomes you, you know it all. So yes, the man has to be humble, not arrogant, not conceited, not rambunctious. That is the snare of the devil. The devil, if the passage in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 can be applied to him, we understand they are applied to Cyrus, but, but if they can apply, be applied to him either, in that census plenier, that double understanding of an allegorical passage, he saw his beauty, he saw he was the seal of perfection, he saw he was the greatest cherubim, and he says, I will ascend to the north, and I will make my throne by the throne of God. And pride filled him, and he was cut off from heaven with one-third of the angels, if we understand that passage in Revelation also, literally. The servants... God uses are broken. They have been broken. That's why it helps when they have certain age. They are not called elders. Just elders because they are 
That's a nice title. No, they have had their walk with God. They've known the rod of their father. They've known the rod of affliction. Like they, their Savior, they have been afflicted in the afflictions of God's people. And they can deal with them. One of the dangers, and, 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 and again, I'm not generalizing, Spurgeon started in the ministry when he was 16. So you can have a young pastor and be greatly used of God. At 19, Spurgeon commanded, I don't know, an audience of 3,000 people or something like that. So you, that can happen, yes. But point is, general terms, yeah, you, you need some white hair. And if genetically God didn't make you to have white hair like Freddie, at, at least you know some marks that, yeah, he, he's lived. You need some, some manifestations of he's suffered. He understands what it is to, to deal with God's people. There is that element. I remember the first time I was going to preach publicly. 1982, I was 19. Uh, and this friend of mine told me, let me tell you the story of the old man and the young preacher. He got it from Spurgeon. I, I later read it in one of Spurgeon's books. And there's this young preacher who wanted to preach. Oh, pastor, I want to preach. I want to preach. Why can I not preach? I need to preach. I want to preach. And the pastor says, okay, come preach. Sunday, the 15th, is going to be your day to preach. And the young man is ready, has prepared, studied, prayed, fasted, and he comes proud to the pulpit to finally preach. He stands up, opens the Bible, sees the people, and mind goes blank. Mumbles a couple of words and goes down broken and down and sits and then the old man told him, if you would have gone up the way you came down, you would have gone down the way you came up. The ministry is not a place to display abilities. The ministry is not a place to be admired by people. The ministry is not a place to, uh, let me see how people like me. I'll say this honestly. There's so much misery in the ministry. There's so much hurt. So much pain. Your best friends betray you. People you think you have their heart or they have yours just stab you in the back. The ones you did not even think they would do it cut you to pieces and they move the knife that you don't even want to be here. Except that when you're called, you're called. And when you're called, you go back willingly. Because God makes you willing in the day of his power. If there's anybody sitting here saying, that's what I want. I want to be known. I want to sit here like Didon and Mario sat here with Freddie. And I, if you want that, you have no idea what you want. Actually, it's proof that, that you're not caught for it. The ones who are called do like Mario and Didon did. No, no, not me. Why me? Well, the church mentioned your names. They put you in a paper. No, but not me. Find someone else. That's pretty much the way it works. But then you do it. Because God called you. Jerry Reed says, <laughs> pastors must take the syrup that they prescribe to people. Come with the syrup of consolation, the syrup of the gospel, the syrup of encouragement, the syrup of dealing with the depressed, the dealing with the, with the downcast, the one that is hopeless, the one that says, does, really, does God really exist? This thing is all pain. Is this there's really a God out there? And you in the morning, you take your syrup of faith and of hope. 
and of scripture and of grace. And once you take it, then you bring it to your people. That's the way it works. God didn't send angels to preach. Just like the Savior, in all things, he was afflicted. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. And so are pastors. That's the name of the game. I'll go quickly. Victor, I'm going to steal. Thank you for putting the clock there. I have a minute and 30 seconds. I'll take like five more. Um, their confirmation, and I just fly through this. Their confirmation, the elders must agree for those who are nominated. Why do we say that? Several Bible verses, Acts 23, 25, Titus 1, 5 through 6, 1 Timothy 4, 14, and 5, 22. They have to have the heart of the ministry and of the presbytery to be nominated, to be called into the ministry. They, they, the serving elders are the ones who nominate and propose. Timothy, do not neglect the gift of God that is in you that was passed to you with the imposition of my hands in front of the presbytery. The church has to be involved. The church must agree. Why? Because they went back, Acts 14, to appoint elders in the churches they had gone. And it's interesting, to appoint elders, and the, the verb used is by the show of hands. The church apparently, apparently, because that's the verb used, the, verb, the church had to vote and say, yes, we agree that Didon and Mario and Freddie are made elders in our congregation. How could Titus in Crete or even Timothy in Ephesus? They were not, Timothy was not from Ephesus. And Titus was sent to Crete to put things in order. How would they know who is like that? By asking the congregation. The voice of the congregation has to be heard on this matter. Acts 6.3, when they elected the first deacons, what was the command? Select from among yourselves. What men are qualified for this? And the church selected, and they had the approval of the apostles and appointed the first deacons. So why do we do it? Freddie read the Constitution. Why do we do it the way we have it in our church constitution? Because we learn by precept and by principle that that is the biblical method. And, what is the, and that is a confirmation of the elders. It has to be done by the presbytery, by the current elders, and by the congregation. And what is their commission? 1 Peter 5, 1-4 says, They have to shepherd the flock of God. They have to teach and preach the word of God. They have to rule by loving example. And their reward is not money, but Christ. Meaning they have to be men who are heavenly minded and they do their ruling their teaching their preaching their shepherding their tending of the flock they do it in love with an eye put on the sheep and an eye put on the savior let me let me confess to you things since i'm not a pastor i can get away with saying some things that i'm not going to get me in trouble sometimes you're talking to people in the church and it is the same, 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 same thing. And you say, man, dude, again. And sometimes <laughs> our eyes get wet. Same thing, dude. Grow up. Do you know why the eyes get wet? <laughs> because we look at their Savior. Jesus died for them. Jesus paid for them. He went to a cross and shed his blood for
for them. And I was saying, go take care of their ticks. Go wash them. Go pull out whatever is messing with them. Clean their ears again. Do whatever it takes. They are my sheep. And you do it. And what is the church response to those who are called as elders? 1 Timothy 5, 12-13 says, Recognize those who labor among you. You have to know them. You have to know who they are. And esteem them highly. Appreciate them. Why? Because of their copious labors in the Lord. They're not there because they're handsome. In fact, none of the three of them are handsome. Freddie, more or less, but with that ponytail, he messes it up. So they're not even handsome. It's not because they are pretty. No, it's because of their copious labors in the Lord. Appreciate them. Esteem them in love. Live in peace with one another. Hebrews 13, 17. Be open to their persuasion. Some, some schizophrenic men that I know, crazy dudes, and they are crazy. I'm not going to mention names. Authority of the elders. You have to submit to the elders because the elders rule. And they are crazy. They are just crazy people. If they were out in the world, they would not stand a job, not even as a... I'm not going to say because every job is honorable. So they are just always in the authority thing. You know what submit to the elders mean? Be open to their persuasion. An elder comes to you, comes with an admonition, comes with an exhortation, comes with an instruction. Don't start like, well, um, in, in my, uh, my Christianity is not that way. Be open to their persuasion. They're coming with the Bible. Be open to their persuasion. Hear what they have to say. Oh, are they in error? Fine, they are in error. They're not God. You have a Bible. But your attitude is not the attitude of, of the know-it-all. You cannot talk to me. You're the person that, that we have to, oh, be careful. There's this person. And you just try to see how you walk in eggshells. No. Just be open to their persuasion. That's the meaning of submit to them. Do not er entertain unproven accusations against an elder. Do not admit any accusation except on the word of two or three witnesses. Another secret I'm going to tell you. So if it happens, at least I told you before it happened. If you ever come to me with an accusation against an elder, perhaps I will not be able to preach anymore in the church. Because all the pain I have, that the Lord knows, and I pray to the Lord, sometimes for long periods, forgive this person, forgive him, forgive him, Father, don't take it into account. But all that pain is going to come out. If you bring to me anything against Freddie or whomever the Lord calls of these two. Because against an elder, do not entertain accusations. It's a commandment from God. And don't come with a manure and the rubbish of, there's a group in the church that thinks, the hell with a group in the church that thinks. If you have witnesses, bring them. If you don't, you're dividing the church. And you're attacking the bride of Christ. And I'm sorry, but I'm saying it as it is. Enough of entertaining accusations against an elder. Thankfully, thankfully, I believe we have years that by the grace of God, we don't go through that in Cornerstone. It is a mercy of Christ. Be diligent in preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So conclusion, be gracious in your evaluation. Be gracious. Be kind. 
these are the same qualifications we have to abide with. Be biblical. Don't be emotional. Be biblical. But be gracious. Be merciful. And pray. Pray over this. This is a, this is a momentous time for Cornerstone to add more men into the ministry. This could bless us immensely or it could destroy us immensely. Pray for Cornerstone. Amen. Father, be merciful to us and guide us in this process. Be merciful to your people. Be merciful to the men being considered. Be merciful to our Pastor Freddie. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.